If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. And I'd like to read the first 14 verses, and then we'll be looking this morning at verses 13 and 14. But Exodus chapter 14, and then we'll be looking at verses 13 and 14. God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and unchanging word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his, all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it uh, not this? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless this word. May he write it on our hearts and give us uh, true faith uh, to believe it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've you've heard the, the narrative, the story of the Israelites as they were led out to the Red Sea and deliberately put between a rock, as it were, and a sea. Not a hard place, a rock and a wet place. And here comes Pharaoh, of whom Scripture says, and it uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which is why I call this passage Salvation is from Yahweh, because that's literally what the text says in Hebrew. Salvation is from Yahweh. 
And it says, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now it also says in uh, Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, in Exodus 9, 16, it says uh, something quite remarkable. It says, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might show you my glory. And then in Romans 9, 16, this is how you can remember, they're both 9, 16. Paul changes that just a little bit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets Exodus 9 by saying that, that the Lord raised up Pharaoh that he might show not to him, as it says in Exodus, but through him my glory. In other words, Paul says that Pharaoh became an instrument of the glory of Yahweh. And so he did. But we do need to, as we think about this passage this morning, salvation is from Yahweh, we do need to appreciate the plight of the Israelites. They had been in bondage for 400 years. The Lord had promised them uh, a land, promised to Abraham uh, a, a people and a land, as many people as the sands of the seashore, as many people as the stars in the sky, and, and a land. He'd also promised, most importantly, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And we understand that these promises uh, were not literal, they're true, they're, they're figurative. In other words, the la- certainly he promised the land, but the land was only a picture of blessings to come, of, of eternal blessings, and uh, most especially a picture of Christ, of rest from sin, a rest from judgment, and blessing of the Lord. The, obviously, he's fulfilling his promise uh, to make as many, to give Abraham as many children as the sands on the seashore and stars in the sky. This is uh, Genesis 12, Genesis uh, 15, and Genesis 17. And he's still fulfilling his promise I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And we know that because the Apostle Peter repeats that promise in Acts 2.39. When the uh, men uh, of Israel gathered for the feast at Pentecost, saw all the things that had taken place, and heard uh, Peter uh, preach the law and the gospel, and they said, well, you know, what what do we do? What what must we do to be saved? Um, And Peter said, the promise is is to you, and to your children. In other words, he invoked that Abrahamic promise from Genesis 17. So all these things are uh, absolutely true. So God had made a promise, uh, had made a promise of a land, a promise of a people, and here they were in captivity for 400 years. And at the end, of course, you know it was very awful. Uh, they were they were made, uh, they were enslaved, and they were made to make bricks uh, without straw. It was terrible. And it's probably hard for us to appreciate that. It's hard for, for me to think of this narrative without thinking of, of, certain, of certain films. Right? That's how I learned what little I knew as a child of the Old Testament was through Charlton Heston, basically. Um, so, uh, and, and yet the, the, the films uh, don't really capture how, how awful it was. Uh, the building of, of, of these giant uh, monuments, um, pyramids and the rest, um, there was no there was no equipment. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about how these things uh, were built. I mean, um, there 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 was no hydraulics. I mean, they did have a grasp of physics, and they did uh, have crude machines, pulleys and the like, but they didn't have the kinds of machines that that we know of to make buildings. And mostly, 
These buildings were made uh, by hand, by sweat, and by blood. And the, the blood and bones of many, many Israelites formed the mortar of those buildings and held those things together as people were, were literally crushed and killed as these things were made. Um, some of you are, are old enough to have a, some sense of, of what it was like, in, for, just to give you a, a kind of a parallel, of what warfare was like uh, in, in World War II. Right? Think of the fact that we've, we've been at, at war now in the war on terror uh, since 9-11, and we've lost probably altogether in terms of active per duty personnel fewer than 10,000 people. In World War II, uh, we could lose 10,000 people in a week. Uh, we lost thousands of people, thousands of people just landing uh, in Italy and landing uh, on, uh, in France, right? So, I mean, the, we live in this sort of, uh, people call it uh, cotton wooling some places, bubble wrap world where every, right? Uh, in my home state, they just, where as a kid, we didn't even, we couldn't even find the seat belts in our cars. <laughs> they were stuffed underneath. Nobody, now they have kids up to eight years old sitting in, in car seats and the little ones sitting in seats facing back, right? So we live in this very protected, safe, cotton wool, bubble wrap world. The Israelites didn't live in that world. They lived in a violent, dangerous, rough world under, the, under Egyptian slavery. It, it really was miserable. So it is sort of extraordinary that they complained to Moses, and, and, and you get a sense of, again, I say they, this is, we are they, right? These are our people. These are not those folks. These are our people. This is the church of Jesus Christ under types and shadows. So we were in slavery, we were in bondage. We were being abused. We were suffering. We were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. And it was, it was very, it was awful, frankly. It was just awful. And, and the Lord intentionally makes it worse. Because the Lord could have simply, right, as he demonstrated in the plagues, Remember how many plagues? Ten plagues? Flies, darkness, gnats, frogs, blood. Right? Certainly the Lord, who spoke into nothing and made all that is, could have wiped out Egypt and the people could have wa walked out, as it were, scot-free without any drama. He could have done that. He chose not to. He chose to lead them into... Uh, what the Israelites saw as from a bad situation to a worse situation. And at this point, I'm not going to say, and, and what are the Red Seas in your life? Because that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is to teach us about the, the mysterious, wonderful, sovereign, free, gracious nature of our salvation, the salvation that God has wrought for us in Jesus Christ. And this picture of the church right at the Red Sea, the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh and all of his, uh, when it says hosts, that's a, a, as you, if you listen carefully, the, the next time uh, uh, his uh, forces were mentioned, they were called an army. Right? So these are 
military forces. So you got to imagine highly trained, highly motivated, well-armed, powerful military force riding down the hill, going down to the water with all of the thundering hooves of the chariots and the horses. If you've ever, um, I'm from uh, Nebraska and I spent, born in Kansas and was, spent some time on the family farm in Kansas and did a little work with cattle, not a lot, but enough to know uh, how it goes and, and what it's like. And, and if you've ever heard, uh, uh, listened to, or heard the sound of a herd of cattle moving or a lot of horses or maybe uh, been to one of our national parks and seen buffalo running. If you've ever heard that sound, it's an impressive sound. And it certainly was impressive uh, for the Israelites. It meant death. And they couldn't see any way out of it. It just seemed impossible. And of course, they did what we do, or we did what we do. Instead of turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, this is not a problem for you, who spoke into nothing and made all that is. This is not a problem for you, who took uh, all of uh, Egypt's firstborn sons. This is not a problem for you, who sent darkness, you sent frogs. That's, of, all the, of all the plagues, the blood is awful, but the, I think the frogs, for some reason, that one always really gets to me. I saw that in a film one time. Actually, they did a, a really good job of portraying what it... I don't recommend the film, but it, what, that scene in the film was, was actually terrifying. I don't mind frogs a lot, but being surrounded by them is not something I've ever... I've ever but you sent frogs, and you sent darkness, and you sent death. This is not a problem for you. We trust you to take care of this. This is not how we responded. How, how, did, we, how did we respond? We responded by complaining about the Lord to Moses and criticizing Moses. Moses, you jerk, is what they said. Why didn't you? right? And what were they doing all the time in Egypt? What were we doing all the time in Egypt? Complaining about how terrible the conditions were. And, and, now there's, and now when the Lord is in the process of delivering them, quite remarkably, I mean, it hadn't been very long before that the Egyptian, Egyptians had been giving the Israelites all of, their, all of their gold. And yet they, they, they forgot all of that, didn't they? So we have, to, we have to appreciate that. And we also have to appreciate our own condition. Because this is a picture of our own spiritual condition. I mean, this, this really happened, children. The Lord really did take the, the people to the sea. And he really did send Pharaoh and his host. This, this, is really histor- this is real historical stuff that actually happened. It's not just a story in a book. It really happened. But it's also a picture of where we are spiritually apart from the saving grace of God. If we're outside of the saving grace of God, if God hasn't uh, opened your eyes and softened your heart and given you new life and true faith, you're in this condition. You're hopeless. You're lost. Pharaoh's armies are coming down uh, uh, the hill and you've got the Red Sea behind you. In other words, you are without hope and lost and under judgment in, in this world. And this 
is the picture throughout Scripture. Whenever Scripture wants to talk about it, particularly in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, when Scripture wants to uh, uh, illustrate for us the nature of salvation, it goes back to this episode. That's why it's so important to think about this episode and understand the message of this episode. This is the picture of salvation, of God arranging things for his own glory, sovereignly orchestrating events, and powerfully and wonderfully saving his people from certain death and destruction. From certain death and destruction. This is salvation. Well, when I say this word salvation, what do I mean? That, that's really important. We use that word. Sometimes people say to me, when were you saved? I've had that question many times. And, it, uh, and I know what people mean when they ask that. What they mean is, when did you come to new life and true faith? That's not properly when I was saved, though. We should get that right. That's not properly when I was saved. There was a point at which I didn't believe, and then there was a point at which I did believe, and God the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and gave me new life and true faith, and that's the application of redemption by the Holy Spirit, the application of redemption. But the accomplishment of redemption was at Golgotha on the cross, and so the proper answer to the question, when were you saved, was I was saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And when he said, it is finished, that's when I was saved. As to when the Holy Spirit applied salvation, well, that's a mysterious thing. I remember when I didn't believe, and I remember when I did believe. And exactly when that happened is, is really not for me to say. All I know is I, I, believe, uh, I did come to faith, and I do believe now. And I know what people mean when they ask that, and they mean well, but it's a misguided question. We know when we were saved, when our backs were against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his, all of his armies, right? We're not too far from 29 Palms where the Marines are. We're not too far from Camp Pendleton where the 1st Marine, Divi Marine Division is. Imagine the 1st Marine Division coming after you. Right? I mean, just, a, just a platoon, in fact, I'm a little partial to the Marines and the, and the Navy. Just a squad could be problematic for most of us. But imagine the entire 1st Marine Division coming after us. That's a fearsome thing. Very few nations in this world want to face the 1st Marine Division because those boys like to fight, and they're trained to be effective. Nobody really wants to get crosswise with the 1st Marine Division. They just don't. Nobody wanted to get crosswise with Pharaoh's army, and yet there we were. And, and there we are, by virtue of our sin and death and corruption outside of Christ. So what, what three things are we supposed to take away from this passage? I'll tell you, uh, what is the nature of the salvation that the Lord works for his people? And how do we respond to it? If we ask the, Let's put the question this way, the same question that we see in the book of Acts, what, what must we do to be saved? And the Lord says three things. And the first thing he says is, stand still. <laughs> I think that's really important. If you don't take anything away from this morning's message, you should at least take that away. What must I do to be saved? Nothing. Salvation is not in your hands. It's not something that you do. And it's really important that you know that because there are people 
well-known people, influential people, people that are regarded as sometimes by people who don't know better as orthodox evangelical leaders who are telling us that, for example, you're initially saved by grace alone through faith alone, but you're finally saved at the judgment partly by the righteousness of Christ worked for you and partly by the righteousness of the Spirit worked in you and through good works. There are famous, well-known evangelicals now saying that, that salvation is in two stages, initially by grace alone, through faith alone, and finally through works at the judgment. That's not true. And I know it's not true because it contradicts the basic paradigm-establishing picture of salvation in Exodus chapter 14. And I know it's not true because it contradicts the clear, unequivocal teaching of God's holy word in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where works don't enter into it except as a consequence of our salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Now, Paul does go on to say that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, but not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. That's huge. That's the other thing you need to take away from this morning. We do good works not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And the difference between Christianity and every other doctrine, religion, philosophy, is that difference. In Christianity, in biblical Christianity, in the Reformed Confession, we say that we do good works because we have been saved. And we have been saved by God's free favor through faith alone for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. Period. And we respond to that with gratitude and thankfulness. And we seek to grow in godliness and out of that come good works. It's the natural outgrowth of God's grace. Every other religion in the world says no. In order to achieve nirvana or whatever it is, and, and many times people say salvation, you need to do certain things. That's not Christianity. That's natural religion. But it's not Christianity. And it's not Exodus 14. The first thing that Yahweh says through Moses, right? look at your Bibles in Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh. Right? And what is salvation? It's deliverance from judgment, deliverance from condemnation. It's righteousness and it's sanctification. It's the whole ball of wax, as Grandpa used to say. The whole shooting match. This is a comprehensive term, salvation. Deliverance from judgment and, and deliverance into blessedness with God. Deliverance from judgment and deliverance of, uh, into blessedness with God. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh. And look, look at, at the next clause. Which he will work for you today. What's the verb? To work. We'll diagram a sentence here. The verb in that clause is to work. Who's the subject of the verb? Just like school. Isn't that terrible? 
The subject of the verb is he. It's a pronoun. From, for whom does he stand? It stands for God, which Yahweh, which God will work for you, not which we, which Yahweh and we will work. That's called synergism. Synergy is great in politics and economics and civil life and cultural life. It's terrible in theology. It's terrible in Christian teaching. There's no synergy. There's only monergy, one working. In salvation, God works. God saves. God justifies. God sanctifies. And we respond. Salvation is by grace, by favor, through faith. And this, not of yourselves, the whole thing, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. In other words, if we had any part in it, in accomplishing it, we could boast. Well, I did my part. And Moses, the Lord just said to us through Moses, no, you didn't do your part. Your only part is to stand still and be quiet. Look at, and we'll come back to the last part in verse 13, but look at verse 14. The second thing you have to know is that, what, you know, what must I do to be saved, right? First is to be quiet, or, or, or to, to, to be stand still. Second thing in verse 14, Yahweh, it says, will fight for you. Right? Again, Yahweh is the subject of the verb. Fight is the verb. Yahweh fights, not Yahweh and we fight. Yahweh fights for us, in our place, to our advantage. Salvation is something that Yahweh is accomplishing. We can't destroy the Egyptians. We can't do anything with the Red Sea. Yahweh has to part the Red Sea. The whole point, he put them in this terrible, untenable situation to demonstrate to them and to us, listen, you people are hopeless and helpless, and the only way you'll ever be delivered from sin and death and condemnation is if I do it for you. Take note. Nota bene. Pay attention. That's why this story is here. He arranged this episode so that you would understand. Do you understand that? That's how much God loved you. He arranged this whole episode so that you would understand the nature of your salvation. It really happened. It's not just a story. It really happened. But Peter tells us that God arranged all these episodes so that we would understand the nature of salvation. That God the Son had to become incarnate and accomplish salvation for us. Not even in us. One of the differences between the medieval church and the Roman church on the one hand and the Protestants on the other is the difference between in and for. In the medieval church, they said God is accomplishing salvation in you and with your cooperation. And in the Protestant Reformation, we said, no, God has accomplished salvation for us. And he freely gives it to us. That's huge. Again, that's one of those things you should take away. The difference between in and for. Christ accomplished salvation for us and he gives it to us freely. Yahweh will fight for you. And again, you have only to be silent. And here I, I hear my, grand, my, my grandmother who was a farmer's wife in southwestern Kansas, just in a little town, actually not in town, but out of town, a little bit south of Dodge, down by Dodge City. And sometimes grandma would turn and she'd say, be still. 
but she needed to say a lot to me. <laughs> we, we didn't know about ADHD in, in, in 1967, but Grandma knew in, intuitively, be still. This is what Yahweh just said to us. Be still. I'm going to save you in the most remarkable and unexpected way. I'm going to part the Red Sea, and you're going to go through on dry ground. What an extraordinary thing. The psalm says again and again, and they went through on dry ground. It's a way, it's a, it's a way of, of emphasizing the totality of salvation. God totally saved us such that we went through uh, the Red Sea on dry ground. In other words, there was never in doubt. Our salvation was never in doubt. He delivered us completely and utterly by his sovereign power and grace. And then there's just one last thing. We'll go back to verse the, the last part of verse 13. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. What an extraordinary thing to say. All these armies that are coming down the hill, of, of whom you're, in a sense, from a human point of view, justly terrified, I'm going to take care of them. Don't worry. That's what the Lord has done to your sins and to judgment and to condemnation. You'll never see it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's extraordinary. Not like you're, well, you're delivered provisionally. This is what people are actually telling us now. You're delivered provisionally, but not finally. Nonsense. The Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So either you have gone through the Red Sea in Christ, right? Christ, all the judgment of the Red Sea was poured out on Jesus at Calvary. And either you are in Christ and he sustained the judgment for you or you are not. And if you're not, then Pharaoh's armies are still coming. Much worse than Pharaoh's armies. Eventually, Pharaoh's armies would get tired and would relent. God's justice never relents. He doesn't play. It's not a game. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to set a good example. He came to bear God's wrath in place of all of his people. And that's the good news is that he did it for all of his people. He actually accomplished it. He didn't make your salvation possible. He actually accomplished your salvation. That's the extraordinary thing. That's the glorious thing. That's the marvelous good news this morning. That salvation is of Yahweh. And he actually accomplished it. And he freely administers it to us who believe by his grace. Let's give thanks. Father, we're so grateful this morning for the good news that we see in Exodus 14. We're so glad that salvation belongs to you and not to us. That we are recipients, grateful recipients. And we pray that you'll bless us this morning as we come to your table. Feed us, renew us, confirm in us the promises that we've heard, the good news that we've heard. Make it visible to us 
as we receive and eat. O Lord, hear our prayer and bless this word and the gospel made visible, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.